All right. Well, good morning. Uh, well, we have been going through the book of Ephesians, and we're going to continue that today. And today we are closing chapter one. So that's a pretty big milestone for us. <laughs> yes. So we have a few verses to cover. Uh, so that's what we'll be looking at today. Um, I wanted to uh, start with this. Uh, when my kids were young, you know, we would tell bedtime stories. So I'm sure that many of you that have little kids probably have similar rhythms. Um, and I remember this one particular night, long time ago now, our kids obviously are not little and we're not telling bedtime stories these days. But I do remember this one particular night and I was telling the story of the ugly duckling. And I don't think I was reading it, I was probably just recalling it and maybe I had didn't, I didn't recall it well enough. But I told them the story, hey, you know the story of this, this little duckling, right, that was growing up amongst all the other ducklings and then every, everyone was making fun of him, his brothers and sisters, because he just couldn't do the things the same way as his siblings and the other ducklings that was in the group. And he just continued to struggle and feel awful about himself and he was so disappointed, you know, and, and, then it wasn't until, and then he decided to run away because he just couldn't take it anymore. And then he was sitting by a pond, and then a swan happens to fly by and gets into a conversation with him. And then he says, why are you so disappointed? Why are you sitting here feeling, looking so sad? He said, because I'm just such an ugly duckling, and I'm, I just don't fit in with my brothers and sisters. And a swan turns to him and says, you're not a duck, silly. You're a swan, right? And that's how the story goes. Well, as soon as I finished telling the story, one of my kids turned to me, I won't say which one, but one of my kids turned to me and said, Papa, when, I don't get it, when did the duck turn into a swan? <laughs> I, I, play, I put that story away in my head, but I got to tell you, that has come back over and over again because to me, there's a lot of theology in that innocent and maybe a slightly mixed up comment that they said, when did the duckling change? Well, today, you know, as we continue through the book of Ephesians, let's make sure that we, we get our frame on correctly again because it's a letter. Ephesians is a letter. And Paul is writing a very personal communication. Personal because these are people that Paul lived with, right, for several years. Think about writing to someone that you have that kind of knowledge with. This is the church that Paul built. This is the community that he assembled together. He knows them. He knows their names, right? He knows their stories. He knows their struggles, right? He knows the things that they were anticipating for, that they were hoping for. He knows the reality of the, the community and the environment they live in. He's got very deep personal relationship personal knowledge. And we know, as Nick told us, it's written while Paul is in prison. So imagine all of the confluence of all of that coming together. He's writing an intimate letter to people that he's labored with intensely for years while he might be facing his death sentence, knowing he may never see them again. This is the only and last communication that he will have with his intimate close friends. So what is Paul's heart for this community? Probably great affection, right? And great love? Well, that's the letter that we have. And God decided that this letter that Paul wrote should be sealed in the Bible for you and I to unpack here today on this Sunday morning. 
And we need to read it too because God has meant it for us as though he has written it specifically for you and I. And these words are words that God has saved and preserved for us to hear. Why? So that we can also know the heart posture of our God towards us. So that's what we're going to do. Let's read this carefully. And we're going to start at verse 18. And keep in mind, we're, now that we're in verse 18, and it'll be on the screen, starting at verse 18 to the end of the chapter, it's a prayer petition, right? Paul is interceding for the Ephesians, and so he's in the middle of a prayer. So actually, verse 18, we're picking, up, we're picking it up actually in a half sentence of a prayer, but let's go with that. That's where we are. Right? It's okay, because I think it'll work. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, Right? So that's the prayer. He's saying, look, I'm praying for you, and he prays for wisdom earlier, but he says, look, I'm also praying that having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know. And I'll come back to that phrase, that you may know. You may know what? You may know what is the hope to which he has called you, okay? And you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, got it, and and you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, and not only raised Him from the dead, but He also seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places." And then Paul just goes off, because I'm not sure if he's praying anymore or if he's just like, just, just preaching now, but he says, <laughs> he says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, right, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And there's even more. He says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. So let's unpack that this morning and let's see what God has to say to us this morning from this text. So would you just pray with me that God would meet us here? And Father, we do pray with open hands to receive these words as though you penned it with our names in mind. And you are communicating your heart posture to us. You want us to know something. You want us to know you and more about the relationship and how to engage in this world well. So open our ears to hear and our hearts to understand and our eyes to be enlightened. As Paul prayed, we ask for that same thing for us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, <clears throat> so let's put verse 18 back up on the screen. As you, can, as you read the text, can you identify what's motivating Paul to pray this prayer, right? His prayer is having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. What's motivating him? It's that next sentence, that you may know, right? That's the driver for Paul in this, that you may know, that you may know something, 
right? These things that he has a litany of. Wait a minute. I mean, these are believers that he's writing to, right? These are people of faith. They, they must already know these truths. They already understand these things. So why would Paul pray for them to know what they already know? Well, just because you know doesn't mean you know. <laughs> I mean, even if we are already Christians, right? Even if we already know, the actual truth of the fact is that those things don't always fully sink in, right? The penny doesn't drop necessarily. Or if it does, we seem to lose it along the way. Just because you know doesn't mean you know. And often, you need to know what you already know. I know I'm repeating the word know a lot of times, but you do. We think we know, we claim we know, but you need to know what you already know. There's a huge difference between knowing something in intellectually or rationally. And I'm not saying that's where we are necessarily, but there is, there's a huge difference between knowing something in the mind and actually possessing it in your heart. Because that's what Paul is saying here, right? Such kind of knowledge, such kind of knowing is, is a gift. Faith like that is a gift. It's a miraculous working of God opening the eyes of our hearts. And we have experienced that. So Paul, in verse 18, is praying, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. All right, so how do you know if the eyes of your hearts are enlightened? Like, what, what do, what do you, how, do you, how do you tell? Yeah, I am. Oh, no, it's not. Like, what do you use to tell that? <laughs> well, maybe a good litmus test between knowing and knowing, right, is are you amazed? Hmm? Faith is living amazed. It's amazed at the unsearchable, unquenchable love of God. And that's a fair test for me because there are many times when I read text or when I come into a place of worship and I'm not experiencing the amazement. I'm not experiencing the movement and the presence of God. Right? I know, but I'm hearing these things. I'm reading these things, but it's a penny's not dropping. It's not going in. So faith is experiencing that true amazement. Well, that means that the real problem or the main problem that you and I are facing this morning, no matter what your situation is that you're going through, and I don't know your specific circumstances, whatever you're dealing with, is that you don't know what you claim to know. Or to put it another way, you don't know the character of your God. Let's unpack that a little bit, right? Maybe, maybe you're in a place um, where there's some sort of a cloud hanging over your head. And you're carrying some kind of a big weight, some kind of a big situation. And, and you might be saying to yourself this, because I do it many times, if I could just get this thing resolved. You know what? If I could just figure out a way to work this out, oh my gosh, my life is just in chaos right now and I'm really struggling. If I could just get control of this one situation, if I could just find a way to navigate this one sin issue, then then I could get the rhythms back in place, right? Then, then I could start experiencing moving in the direction that I, that I should. I hate to burst your bubble, but there's another cloud waiting around the corner. There's another cloud and another cloud and another cloud. The problems of life do not end. 
do not disappear, do not go away. You see, so if we're waiting to get everything in order and then I can focus on God, that ain't coming. Your main problem, my main problem, is that we have forgotten that God is our Father. So, Paul, in his prayer, let's look at this. He doesn't pray, right? Look at, let's look at the where when he prays for hope. He doesn't pray that they would have hope. What does he pray? That they would know the hope they already have, right? It's a difference. He's not praying, oh my gosh, give them some hope, Lord. Bring some hope into their lives. He's praying what? For them to apprehend and realize the hope that they already have. Some of you here are feeling helpless. Well, there's a prayer here for power, right? The immeasurable greatness of his power towards us. But he's not praying, Lord, give them power. He's praying that they would know the power they already have. That is our issue. You see, the Bible is giving us the key to whatever problem you're facing. Because the real problem you have is that you don't know what you already have. You don't know what you already possess. Paul is saying whatever problems you're facing, whatever those situations are, the issue really is you don't know deep enough the character of the God you claim to know. And I tell you personally, for me, that's really sad for me. It's shocking and disappointing. I find myself disappointed in that situation. That I am living without knowing who I am and what I have. You know, in some ways, we are already those beautiful swans. But we can't seem to apprehend it. Right? We can't seem to believe it for some reason, for a moment. Maybe there's that other swan that came in and told us you're a beautiful swan, and at that moment, oh my gosh. But it just seems to fleet away, right? It just seems to kind of disappear from us. The truth in our hearts is that we are functionally still living as though we are the ugly duckling. That's where our hearts are. So in verse 18, Paul tells three things, right? He says, three th verse 18 and 19, he says, there's three things I'm praying for, for the Ephesians to know. The first thing he says is that you may know what is the hope. The second thing is that you may know this inheritance. And the third thing is that you may know the power. Now, I'm not going to uh, focus on the first part of hope. I'll actually may come back to that a little bit, little bit later but let me focus on this inheritance piece, and let's read that carefully, because we can miss it. Listen to what it says, right? He says, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? How do we often read it? My inheritance. God is trying to, Paul is trying to encourage us by telling us, you know, all this inheritance that we have. No, that's not what the text says. It doesn't say my inheritance. It doesn't say your inheritance. What does it say? Yes, it says his inheritance, right? That's our misreading of it. Paul is saying what? If you're a Christian, you are God's prize. You are God's wealth. When God looks at you and I, 
He feels wealthy. Right? And it's not just any old inheritance, but he says what? Glorious inheritance. Not like, oh, I inherited a, you know, a 1999, uh, you know, uh, Toyota Corolla. No. <laughs> All right, fine, I got the inheritance. No, this is, this is something that God is super excited about, super proud of. And maybe you're saying, yeah, but I don't believe that. I know you don't believe that, right? <laughs> Paul knows you don't believe that. That's why he's praying this for us, right? That we would know because we can't hold it. It does feel like an unbelievable claim. But the reality is, human beings are God's wealth. Sometimes I think when we think about creation, we think, oh yeah, this really powerful God was just having such a fun time, and he was making all these interesting creations, and he took a planet, and he made it, and how about a horse, and if you thought about a tiger, and what about a penguin, and let's put these twinkling stars, and let's do this, and hey, let's make these creatures called people, and let's give them arms, and what about some fingers, and, and then they can talk, and you know, Right? We sort of think that this creative, imaginative, amazing God was delighting in his artistic creation to make something. But what if it's more than that? Right? What if when God was making human beings, right, he was saying, this is my inheritance. This is going to be my co-heirs of the kingdom of God. Isn't that maybe why the angels, the angels, right? When we hear about the Bible, of the, the Bible story of the angels, the light and the brightness and the amazing of the angels make people afraid. But it says the angels look with curiosity because one day we will rule. You and I, as we sit here, one day will rule. How amazing are human beings created to be? I think that's the problem. We don't realize who we are. We don't realize how we're created. And C.S. Lewis tries to play with that in his, in his story of, of uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, right? Because he has these four little kids who are, who are discovering a wardrobe, and they walk into the wardrobe, and all of a sudden they're in this other world called Narnia, and they're overwhelmed, and they're curious, and they're searching, right? And they're experiencing all these different creatures and different things, and then they meet Aslan, but what is the reality of who those four children are? They're the kings and queens of Narnia. They're the prince and princess of Narnia. Because later in the story, they will call her Queen Susan, that little girl. Those little kids who were timidly afraid and walking around and thinking that they were discovering a wardrobe into the secret world didn't realize they're the rulers of that world. And this King Aslan was bringing them along to rediscover their identity, their story. That's a little like us. I think that's what C.S. Lewis is saying. Oh my gosh, people, you have no idea what you were created for and what it waits, awaits you in eternity. You know, in the Old Testament, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies to pray, uh, for, his, for his people, he would wear what is called an ephod, right? I don't know exactly what it is, but it's some sort of a, a priestly vestment. But on the ephod were jewels, these 12 pieces of jewels that is there. And he wore that ephod with the jewels while entering into the Holy of Holies in a temple. 
Well, Jesus is our high priest. And when he enters before the Father, he enters with you and I as his precious jewels. You and every person sitting next to you are God's precious jewels. I could say this, and I could say this, and you're hearing this, but you're going to sit there and say, wow, that sounds awesome. How come I don't believe it or feel it necessarily often enough? Right? But that's who you are. You are precious jewels in the sight of God the Father. Now think about it, right? What if you believe that? I mean, genuinely, what if you saw yourself as God's inheritance? Seriously, just for a moment, imagine yourself that way. Imagine yourself as royalty. Imagine yourself in the full majesty of how you were created to be. But we can't seem to sustain believing that. No, there's no way, I think we saw that, there's no way I can be that beautiful. I can be that glorious, right? I'm not a swan. I can't be a swan. I've been a clumsy, marginalized, ugly duckling that can't even fit in with the other ducklings. You can tell me I'm a swan. You can tell me I'm a swan, but I have a hard time inside believing it. That's just crazy talk. So what do we do? We push it away. Right? We push it away. But imagine how you would handle disappointments or failures or rejections in your life if you saw yourself as God's inheritance, can the world crush you? Why would it crush you, right? Why would circumstances that are so small and puny crush you? Would you care how much likes you got in your postings, right? Would status be that big a deal? You already have a very high status locked away forever. Would the opinions of others really tear you down or pull you up? No. Sadly, though, it's not even that bad. It's even worse. It's not only that we don't realize or live with the sense of being God's inheritance, right, His treasure, but we rather struggle to be other people's inheritance. We rather get wealth and status from all other sources other than God. And so we look for affirmation, we look for credit, we look for recognition, we look to be noticed, we look to succeed, we look to gain. And it seems so silly in the light of these realities that Paul is saying. We look for meaning and worth in all kinds of places because we have no idea of the glorious riches we already have, or we already are, to God our Father. Okay, so let's look at the next one, the power one, right? That you may know, right? It says here, and what, that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards those who believe. It's not just power, it's His power that He says. It's not just His power, but His great power. More than that, His immeasurably great power. Great power doing what? It says great power towards us. Think about that. This power 
moves in the direction that is favorable to you and I, right? Because it says, to those who believe. That's us. This power is available and moving towards those who believe. And I think of the conversations that our pastor has been having with us over the course of the the last couple of years, right? In his sermons, in opening up the book of Acts and teaching us and saying, look at the power that the apostles experienced after Pentecost, right? And as they gathered together, as they saw the body of Christ becoming, growing in number, And the power demonstrated through miracles and healings and dreams and visions, right? The power that was manifested in demons being cast out and people caring for one another and all of their needs met. And sometimes I'd sit there and go, yeah, but... And I can feel Nick's heart as a pastor to say, guys, there is this great power that God has available to us. It's ours today, and we're sitting here going, you're reaching, Nick. I don't know. That's a lot to happen, right? Maybe we just need to be rational, measured, careful human beings who counts our pennies, who lives lives based on what we can control, and aren't we then just being good stewards of Christ in the world that we live in? Maybe but the power is still there. It's just true. It's just real. And it is for us. It's towards us. And you know this power, though, right? You see His power. I mean, how can you not look at creation and everything that is majestic and not say at times, wow? I've seen it. I've seen some of your postings of beautiful things and and how... Wow, that's amazing. I mean, think about this. He makes our bodies. This is the most complex, confusing, hard to unravel. You go another layer, there's another layer, system, machinery that's ever been made. Right? Even Charles Darwin, as he was wrestling and trying to apprehend the concept or trying to see if evolution is real or not, in his own book, Origin of Species, he, he struggles with this. He says, but I can't explain the human eye. There is no instrument that can zoom in and focus, zoom out, adjust like the eye can in nanoseconds. He didn't know the word nanoseconds back then, but that's the, that's the, the point he's making, right? Like all the different cameras and things that we have, we're still trying to make sure that it gets that, that crisp light of what things really looks like, but our eyes are doing it. It is so complicated, right? Like scientists go one layer down and one layer down and one layer down and they realize that now it's simple. No, there's another world of complexity in there. That's the power that's there. Or the power of the sun, right? I mean, or just a massive tree. Have you not looked at a tree and goes, oh my gosh, like, is it really like 150 years old and... Right? And, you know, I'm just amazed at that. Or the power that God demonstrated how? Parting the sea, the Red Sea. Right? Or made the sun stand still in the, in the battle that the Israelites had. Or he kept Jonah alive in a fish for three days. I mean, even just natural things. I mean, we live with all kinds of things that has been made. Where did it come from? The raw materials the minerals, the natural wealth, right? To create from clothing, to cell phones, 
to skyscrapers, or all things that we found and we know how to uh, uh, um, adapt and use that's in the natural world. It's all here. It's all part of creation. But here's what I love about what Paul is saying. What's the example of power that Paul points to? He points to something. He says here, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that, let's go to the next screen, that worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, right? He talks about the power in this way, the greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Paul says, when I talk about the power of God, let's talk about raising Christ from the dead. He doesn't talk about, right, all of the creation things that I just said, right? He doesn't talk about a hurricane, right? He doesn't talk about asteroids. He doesn't talk about the galaxies. One thing. Why that one? Why death? Why raising Christ from the dead? Because death is the great equalizer. No one can defeat it. Not a one. Your wealth, your status, your brilliance, your position of authority and power, nope, is not a match for death. All those great names and people in history great good and great terrible are dead. There's no Napoleon ruling France. There's no Alexander the Great conquering anything. There's no Genghis Khan marching his armies. There's no Adolf Hitler moving, you know, the, the, the Nazi movement. There's none of that stuff. Nothing. There's no, there's no on the good side, the bad side, whatever side, you thought in the moment. So here we are today, right, and our eyes focus on presidents and prime ministers and dictators and people who are holding offices and, and stars and athletes and musicians and all kinds of these, these, these sort of names. I guarantee you a thousand years from now, you're not even going to know what a president is, much less who a president is. Right? It's so irrelevant. It's so forgotten. It is not significant. Why? Death. And death is what scares all of us. It does, right? Especially if you're an unbeliever, though. Knowing de Jesus defeated death, right? Knowing Jesus defeated death, how can we react to death? What should be our posture towards death? Well, let me read you a, a letter a letter that was written a long time back. It was by a young Lutheran pastor. And it was written in a Nazi death camp. His name is Herman. And he wrote it to his parents on the day he was to be executed. And here's what it says. It's going to be a little hard for me to read it, but let me go through it. When this letter comes, to you, comes in your hands, I shall no longer be among the living. 
this thing that, is, that has occupied my thoughts for months now is about to happen. If you ask me the state I'm in, I can only say I'm in a joyous mood and filled with great anticipation. What consolation, what marvelous strength emanates from faith in Christ. I am amazed. What can really happen to a child of God? Of what indeed shall I be afraid? Everything until now I have done and struggled for and accomplished has been directed to this one goal whose barrier I shall penetrate today. Believing will now become seeing. Hope will become possessing. And I shall forever share with him who is love. Should I not be filled with anticipation? The things up until now I, on, I, have, I have only been permitted to preach about, I shall now see. No more puzzles, no more secrets. Today is that great day. From the very beginning, I have put everything in the hands of God. And now, he demands this of me. Good, thy will be done. Until we meet again in the presence of, your, of the Father, your joyful Herman. just stuns me that he in that moment before he was to be executed had tremendous clarity and a tremendous sense of wait a minute uh-uh I'm not being defeated I'm about to over God Jesus has overcome death and I am about to enter the presence of the father so, Paul prayed that you can know these things, right? That you truly know it. And I talked to you about if you don't know it, well, the sad and destructive impact of not knowing, right? Even as believers. But here's the next question I have, right? Paul is praying, yeah, I, I want you to know. I, I pray that you know. But if you don't know, gosh, you're going to live a weak lives. But here's the next question I have. What's blocking us from knowing this? Hmm? What's stopping you? What's stopping you? What's stopping you and I from knowing the glorious inheritance, the confident hope, the immeasurable greatness of His power? What's stopping us? Well, there can be many things, and that can take a long time to unpack, but here's what I want to focus on today. Ourselves. What's stopping us is ourselves. It's our own counsel to ourselves. You see, it's the voice in your head that speaks to you constantly. It's the critical voice of our old nature telling you, are you kidding yourself? And you're hearing that and being counseled with that constantly, right? And Paul talks about that when he writes the book of Romans. He talks about this, this old man and this new, the old uh, nature and the new nature. 
And that voice is there constantly telling you, you will never be a swan. That's not you. Who are you fooling? Who's fooling, who's fooling who? No one's going to buy it. You really want to embarrass yourself? You really want to step out on a ledge and go tell everybody you're a swan? Everybody's watching you. Everybody's judging you. You're so pathetic. Right? There's this constant crushing of our own selves that we keep having. Why? Because we think about our past. We think about our insufficiencies. We think about our struggles. We know our secrets. Right? We feel shame. And we replay that as though it is the only and true and correct and appropriate reality by which to engage in the world, engage Jesus, and think of ourselves. We are self-defeating ourselves because we are putting ourselves on trial and saying, found lacking, not good enough, don't deserve to be anybody's inheritance. Right? There is this constant struggle that we have. And so we are fearfully and sheepishly over and over again returning to the law. God has said you are no longer under law, you are under grace, but you and I will constantly return back to the law because you know what? That's a checklist that I can try to conquer. That's a measuring rod that I can say I'm doing well or not doing well. And Jesus says, not interested not measuring you, you're not on trial, you are my child, you are my inheritance, that's the end of the story. And we keep trying to think, but I don't qualify, but my sin, but today, but this, but this, I'm still an ugly duckling, I'm still an ugly duckling. You don't know the trauma of the past, of the issues, of the reality, of the belief, of the experiences, of the shame. You are a new creation. God has made all things new and we can't lean into this new identity that we have. And so we keep thinking, I can't be a swan. Why? Because out of some twisted nobility, I don't deserve to be a swan. Of course we don't deserve to be a swan. If you deserved it, Jesus didn't want to have to die and he would have said, well done. But he had to have his own son. God had to have his own son come and pay the price. And when Jesus takes us before the Father, we truly are the jewels, the precious jewels. So, because Paul knows this, right? Look at Paul's prayer. So let's switch over to verses 20 to 23. Because here, Paul just seems to go off as I said, right? Let's look at the way that, 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 let's go back and look at what he says. And, and I was trying to understand why, why does he do this? Why does he, why does he start praying for these things and then, and then mention Christ and then go off on who Christ is? He goes, um, in 20, well, let me start, 19 says, immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And he says, and he seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. And he goes on to mention, 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet. 
Paul is trying to tell us, look, I am going to grab you and shake you and let you know for every but, 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 no. There is no name. There is no person. There is no judge. There is no ruler. There is no authority. There is no standard. There is no measure. There's no future ruler. There's no future somebody coming along. There is no other power. There's no demonic forces. And he's not just slightly above. The text says he's what? He's far above. There's not even a close second. He says, Do you, I'm just going to keep shouting this out, he says, so you recognize, oh my goodness, there is nothing, there is nothing, there is nothing that, that can come between you and him. There is no other judge coming in and saying, ah, wait a minute, Jesus, are you sure that that is truly a swan? That is not happening. And so, my encouragement to you as we, as we close our time is that you would know the nature of the king you have. That last verse on, on the church, I'm not going to get into because Paul in, in the Ephesians will spend quite a bit of time in later chapters talking about the church, so we don't need to unpack that. But I want you to understand this, that he goes to great lengths to describe the grand and glorious nature of our king because we keep thinking, I don't know what a grand and glorious king select me. Would he consider me special? Maybe I have something that I missed here. Maybe I have something that I've mixed up. So I'm going to close this way. I'm going to close with another sermon, but not for me, but a video clip that I want to play. It's about three minutes long. It's a sermon by a person named S.M. Lockridge about 50 years ago. He does a far better job than I can in this moment to be able to tell you who is this King Jesus. So, as, as you listen to that video and as you watch that, um, and I'll have the worship team come up as you, as you, as you uh, want to, um, we can participate in communion as well, right? So, after, after you listen to the video and as you're engaging in, in worshiping, part of our rhythm is to have communion together. And what is this communion? It is a thing that we hold tangibly in our hands, physically in our hands. It just tells us, yes, death is defeated. I know it, and I'm going to celebrate it. And he tells us, do this as often as you meet. Why? Because you will forget that you are the victors. You will forget that you are the conquerors. You will forget that the gospel has bought you in, not because of what you're worthy of, but because of his great love for you. The work is finished. There's nothing more left to do. Rejoice and celebrate and enjoy and delight in the goodness and let the gospel truth and the love of Jesus transform you towards holiness, not returning back to a bunch of lists and laws. Let the love of God change your heart. So let's, let's listen to this sermon as you feel led afterwards. Um, you know, participate in the communion. My king was born king. The Bible says he's a seven-way king. He's a king of the Jews. That's a racial king. 
He's a king of Israel. That's a national king. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he is a lord of lords. Now that's my king. Well, I wonder if you know him. Do you know him? Don't try to mislead me. Do you know my king? David said the heavens declare the glory of God. And the fundamentals show it his handiwork. My king is the only one whom there's no means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his solar supply. No barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. Well, well, he's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. And he's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's august. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. Well, he's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in high criticism. He's a fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the cardinal necessity of spiritual religion. And that's my king. He's the miracle of the age. He's the superlative of everything good that you choose to call him. Well, he, he's the only one able to supply all of our needs simultaneously. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He starves and he dies. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? Well, my king is a key of knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. He's the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislators. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the governor of governors. He's the prince of princes. He's the king of kings. And he's the lord of lords. That's my king. Yeah. His office is manifold. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Well, 
I wish I could describe him to you, but he, he's indescribable. He's indescribable. Yeah. He, he's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm trying to tell you, the heavens of heavens cannot contain him, let alone a man explaining him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off of your hands. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. The witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That's my king. Yeah! He always has been, and he always will be. I'm talking about he had no predecessor, and he'll have no successor. There was nobody before him, and there'll be nobody after him. You can't him, teach him, and he's not going to resign. That's my king. Is the kingdom and the power and the glory. All the power belongs to my king. We around here talking about black power and white power and green power, but it's God's power. Thine is the power. Yeah. And the glory. We trying to get prestige and honor and glory for ourselves, but the glory is all his. Yes, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. How long is that? And ever and ever and ever and ever. And when you get through with all of the forever, then amen. Yeah.